Much of this episode's facts and topics are coming from the probable cause affidavit that was released last week. It is a statement made by Brett Payne, corporal at the Moscow Police Department. Corporal Payne is being assisted by the members of the Idaho State Police and the FBI. To be clear, there may be, and there probably is, more evidence in this case that is not in the affidavit. That is because the affidavit's purpose is not to outline everything that the police know. It is to satisfy the probable cause for arrest standard. And bitch, they did. <laughs> I'm Helen Allen. And I'm Sherry Ferreira. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. This case has been absolutely eating me alive. And it's not because it's, I mean, of course it's different than other cases we've covered, but it isn't the case itself. It's like every, the facts of the case and everything we have is just making me go circles in my head and it's just. It makes you loopy. You're like trying to put pieces together that aren't fitting and you just get consumed by it and I think a lot of I'm people are I'm definitely too. consumed by it. <laughs> the and diagrams the in your notes. The thing is for us, oh my god, you guys, if you saw my notes, you'd be like, she needs to be locked up too. <laughs> I, I look like a crazy person. No, but, but it's good. I have to say though, like, I'm so lucky to have a podcast to talk about this because I've wanted to talk about it to everybody who will listen and it's almost nobody who will listen. (laughs) Every time I bring it up, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that case you won't stop talking about enough, Helen. And I'm like, but I just need to know what's going on. Anyway, so let's just get into it. Um, I just want to do a trigger warning. This case is obviously, as every case we cover, There's a gruesome murder. There's four gruesome murders. And, you know, the content, as as much as we're not really going to get into, like, any super, super gruesome details just because we don't even have any. Right. Um, But, you know, trigger warning to anybody who this might be um, affecting. And listen at your own risk. Okay, so let's get right into it. What happened here? We have a quadruple homicide. Um, The victims are Zana Kernodal, who is 20 years old. Ethan Chapin, who is her boyfriend, he's also 20 years old, Madison Mogan, who is 21, and Kaylee Gonsalves, who is 21. Now, her last name, Gonsalves, I've seen it being pronounced as Gonsalves, so that's how I'm going to pronounce it. It may be Goncalves. Um, if anybody knows the right way to pronounce it, feel free to sound call off. Me out. Yeah, I don't know. I I hate pronouncing things wrong, so please let me know. But that's I'm just gonna say it the way that it's been said. Um, in the over, media. Yeah. Okay. So, Gonsalves is what we're going with. Zana, Madison, and Kaylee, the three female victims, are housemates. They all go to University of Idaho, um, and they live in a house together. Now, Ethan doesn't live in that house, but he was spending the night. Now, the house that this all happens at is off campus. So, it's like they're, they're renting out this off-campus housing. It's not owned by the school. The people that live in the house are the victims, minus Ethan, and two other roommates who thankfully survived the night. When referring to the surviving roommates, I will call them BF or DM because that is what the affidavit does. Um, I think it's important to maintain their privacy as much as possible because they're already going through enough. 
Also, as a disclaimer, and I wish I didn't have to say this, but I have already seen a lot of people being incredibly cruel on, like, Twitter and Reddit. BF and DM are survivors, and they are also victims of all of this. So please do not place any blame or guilt on either one of them. They are young girls who are, you know, they obviously didn't expect any of this to happen or for it to turn out the way that it did. Um, They lost some of their best friends to this tragedy, and they will deal with survivor's guilt for their entire life. So please just leave them alone, pray for them, send them good energy, but leave your opinions and your speculations far, far away from them. Right. They're recovering from a very traumatic experience. I think it's pretty point blank. Don't be a fucking idiot. Don't be fucking yeah, mean. Yeah, and it should just go without saying, but I'm telling you, like, on TikTok, on Reddit, on Twitter, I'm just seeing these absolute monsters being like, well, they should go down for, and, and we'll get into it, but it's Go just, down for what? No, I'll explain what I saw, but there is no reason why these girls should be feeling anything except for the grief process of losing their their friends. Let me get into just telling you guys a little bit about the victims. Madison and Kaylee were lifelong hometown friends, actually. Um, Ethan, as you know, was dating Xana. Um, Ethan was actually a triplet, and his two siblings also attended University of Idaho. But they're all friends. Everybody that lives in the house, they're all close friends. Some of them are in the same sorority. Some of them are not, and they all just get along really well. Sweet. The night of the murders, the four students were all out in the college town. Ethan and Zana were seen by BF, the surviving roommate, at a Sigma Chi fraternity party from about 9 p.m. to 1.45 a.m. Around 2 a.m., they started their trek back to their off-campus house. Ethan was joining them for the night because, again, he was dating Zana. Right. Madison and Kaylee were at a local bar called The Corner Club. Video footage puts them there between 10 p.m. and 1.30 a.m. At 1.30 a.m., Madison and Kaylee are seen stopping at a food truck. Now, this particular food (laughs) truck, the grub truck, um, live streams its video of people getting their food to Twitch. So weird. Don't know who that's for, but um, go off, I guess. I mean, people watch videos of people, like, eating. Um, yeah, but like so ordering I guess, your like, food, like watching videos of people ordering is maybe pleasurable. <laughs> Are we in the wrong business? Listen, maybe. I'm not here to judge anybody but the killer. <laughs> you know? Agree. So Agree. That's it. Is what it is. So anyway, they live streamed to this platform, Twitch, and law enforcement was luckily able to obtain that footage. According to the affidavit, a private party reported that he provided a ride to Madison and Kaylee at approximately 1:56 a.m from the grub truck to their house. Can I just say how much this freaks me out? Like, this is the picturesque, normal college night. You know what I mean? They went out, they got drunk, they're getting their food after, they're going home. Like, I used to do this every Saturday night with my friends at school. We would be out, then we would stop at, like, the food truck on the way home, or we'd stop at Jimmy John's, we'd get some food, we'd go home, we'd drunkenly eat, and we'd just talk shit about the night, you know? I mean, it's a Wednesday night, and I'm sure some college kid out there is having the same night right the exact now. exact night, exactly. So, you know, I think part of what gets me about this case is how normal the night should have gone, and how absolutely crazy it is that it didn't go normally. I agree. It's just thinking about how millions... I guess for me, thinking about how millions of college students do this every single night without, like, a second thought, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then for this to all transpire, it's it's very jarring. Right. 
So two other roommates who survived were also in the house. They had returned from being out earlier in the night. According to the affidavit, DM and BF, who are the surviving roommates, and I'm probably getting annoying, but I just hate when I use, like, initials. Then Why? Because it could get confusing for listeners. So, like, I just, you know, I'm going to keep saying the surviving roommates, and people are going to be like, Helen, enough. But that's okay. <laughs> I'd rather give you more information than less. <laughs> right. We're being respectful, so just try to keep up, bitches. <laughs> So, according to the affidavit, DM and BF uh, said that everyone who lived at the house was home and either asleep or at least in their rooms by 2 a.m. This is with the exception of Zana, who received a DoorDash delivery around 4 a.m. The affidavit specifically says, quote, the occupants of King Road residence, which is the house that in question, um, the affidavit refers to it as King Road Residence a lot, and they lived at 1122 King Road. So if I'm using that, that's just the house that it happens in. So the affidavit specifically says, quote, the occupants of King Road Residence were at home by 2 a.m. and asleep or at least in their rooms by approximately 4 a.m. This is with the exception of Kernodal, who is Zana, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m. Now, the delivery driver has been identified, so, like, don't go and speculate off about him. Yeah, he's, he's just doing his job. He's he's good, guys. Now, to me, this language means maybe, and I'm not saying it means this for sure, but maybe Xana was not in her room. She was definitely awake. That's what we know. But the way it says everyone was in their rooms, asleep or at least in their rooms by approximately 4 a.m., the exception of Kernodal makes me think that the exception could be to the fact that she was not in her room. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm not saying that's what it means, but it could mean that, I guess. I agree. Now, the next piece, I'm going to read straight from the affidavit because it is important to get it right in my telling. So let me know if this gets too chunky and kind of confusing, but I'm just going to literally read the affidavit. Okay. <laughs> Feel free to jump in. I got in you. I'll, you I'll be here for you viewers in case you guys get confused. Yeah. DM stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast side of the second floor. DM stated that she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. by what she stated sounded like Gonsalves, who is Kaylee, playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which were located on the third floor. A short time later, DM said she heard who she thought was Gonsalves say something to the effect of, there's someone here. A review of records obtained from the forensic download of Kernodal's phone, Kernodal is Zana, showed this could have also been Kernodal, as her cellular phone indicated she was likely awake and using the TikTok app at approximately 4.12 a.m. DM stated that she looked out of her bedroom but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house. DM stated she opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernodal's room. DM then said she heard a male voice saying something to the effect of, quote, It's okay, I'm going to help you. At approximately 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at 1112 King Road, a residence immediately to the northwest of 1122 King Road, picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. So, basically, the house next door had a security camera which picked up the audio coming from the house right by it which is the house where this is all going down yes okay a dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 4 17 a.m 
The security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Kernodal's bedroom. DM stated she opened her door for the third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. DM described the figure as 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past DM as she stood in a frozen shock phase. The male walked towards the back sliding glass door. DM locked herself in the room after seeing the male. DM did not state that she recognized the male. This leads investigators to believe that the murderer left the scene. The combination of DM's statements to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from BF's and DM's phone, and video of a suspect video as described below, leads investigators to believe the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. Now, that is a lot. Yes. <laughs> I mean... Okay, Oof. so... Uh, let me say this next thing, and then we're going to start talking about okay, the Okay, okay, okay. Oh, wait. So she's basically saying, don't pop off, Sherry. Shut Give up. it a minute. Yep. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> Not done yet. So the affidavit details that the bodies of Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gon- Gonsalves were found in a single bed of what we now know was Maddie's room. Zana and Ethan were found in her room. Well, the affidavit states that as the officer got closer to what we know as Zana's room, he was able to see their bodies. I don't know if this means that Zana was not in her room but near it or if she was actually inside her room because her room kind of like has a hallway piece to it that like maybe he meant he turned the corner towards her room and then saw their bodies and it doesn't necessarily mean her body was in the room. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't matter but maybe it does and I'm just saying like the possibilities here. So to just like kind of explain the bedrooms and the house dynamic, because we're going to get into this a little bit later and it's helpful. There are two bedrooms in the basement level of the house. That is BF's room and one that is vacant because they had another roommate that I think graduated or something and moved out and doesn't live there anymore. There are two bedrooms on the what we're going to call the second floor. It's kind of like the main floor. And this floor has the kitchen sliding door entrance. DM and Zana's room are on this floor. Zana's bedroom is near the stairs that go downstairs, but not near the kitchen sliding door. You would have to enter the kitchen, take a left out of the kitchen, and down like a short hallway into the living room space, and then take another left into a hallway that leads to Zana's room. DM's room, however, is right across from the kitchen, like, entrance into the kitchen and right beside the stairwell that leads to the third floor. There are two bedrooms on the third floor, Maddie and Kaylee's. Now, Kaylee actually wasn't living there full time because she was doing an internship. So she was visiting for the weekend, which is probably why the dog was found in her room and why she was found in the same bed as Maddie because she didn't have furniture in her room since she didn't really live there full time so she was probably just sleeping in Maddie's bed with her since she was visiting for the weekend yeah now another thing I think to note there is no way to get onto the third floor without going through the second floor unless you were to climb onto the balcony which is off of Kaylee's room and go through the sliding glass door on the balcony but there are no stairs onto the balcony and so like It's pretty high up, so I think it's kind of unlikely that that's the point of entry. As far as we know, the manner of death for all is stabbing. However, 
I do want to note that, and although this isn't police fact, Kaylee's father did speak out and said, quote, their manner of death is not the same. Whether this means Kaylee and Maddie's manner of deaths are not the same or the whole group, I don't know. But it does make me think that there is like a possibility here that only one housemate or only some housemates were the target for the attack. Okay, now go off. <sighs> Girl, where to begin? Oh my gosh. I mean, there's just, you explained the house layout very perfectly. Um, and I agree. The fact that her father did say that, and I know you were telling me this too, is that he was very adamant about that. Right. Um, and so I don't, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm just like. I mean, it's, it's just like kind of all we can do is just take the information and be like, okay, I guess we'll wait for more answers. You know what I mean? Because right. it's like we really don't have anything to do except for speculate, which we all know can make a person crazy. But at the same time, it's like I feel at least some peace knowing that if this is the information that we have, A, they have oh, tons more. Right. You know? But B, this is a lot. So yeah. if they have tons more than what they gave us, which they do, they wouldn't be publicizing this if they didn't have a lot more. But I'm I'm happy to know that these girls will get justice because they do have a lot on this guy. I mean, this is already such a detailed account. <laughs> I mean, girl, I'm not it gives even me done. a lot. Of, I've got a lot more to tell you. It gives me a lot of faith that when the trial does start, and maybe that's me jumping ahead, that like they have this in the fucking bag, you know? Right. Right. Okay, so I'm going to keep going, um, and just let me know if you want to jump in at any point, feel free. Especially if you have questions, because I know that I'm throwing a lot at you. The affidavit then goes on to say that upon forensic investigation, they were able to actually detect a latent shoe print showing this, like, diamond-shaped pattern, which they said was similar to the pattern of a Vans-type shoe sole. Which to me makes me crazy because I'm like, oh, I wish the killer would have had something like very unique on his feet. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, every other college kid is wearing Vans. Yeah. yeah. So like that was just kind of a dead end, I'm sure. But whatever. So this shoe print was just outside of DM's bedroom. Remember that DM's bedroom is on the second floor and it's also right across from the entrance to the kitchen. And the kitchen has the door, which is how you get in and out of the house. And also, it's right next to the staircase that goes up to the third floor. Yeah, so her room is connected to a lot of the moving right. pieces of what right. happened. So, you know, I hate to say that it was lucky she was a witness because I'm sure she's traumatized by it. Oh, just hearing that but word, I'm sure she's like, how, this, how is this lucky, you know? I, like- I do want to say, though, I hope one day she is able to be proud of herself because... She is a giant charging factor as to why this person is going to be put away and as to why her friends are going to be able to get justice and her friends' families. And so as much as this is a giant burden for her to have on her right now, it it is going to be incredibly crucial that she did witness this stuff. I mean, half of the accounts are coming from her. I mean, like, she is very crucial to this. Right. I mean, she, most of what she said is the reason why they have him. So... This footprint was found just outside of her bedroom, 
So this is consistent with her saying that the suspect was headed for the kitchen sliding door. He also had a mask on. Um, She had said that it covered his mouth and his nose. I just want to clarify that because I know a lot of people thought like ski mask right at first. That's what my head went to. I was like, he was in a ski mask? Yeah, and then a lot of people were giving her shit like, well, how would you know what he looks like? He was wearing a ski mask. And it's like, well, he was wearing a COVID mask. And really the only thing that she said was his height. And the fact that he had bushy-ass eyebrows. And he was unathletic. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and she's like, and he's ugly, and he's stinky, and... <laughs> no, so she said that he has these, like, eyebrows that were very defining. Right, right. Upon doing further investigating, officers did, like, video canvassing. They were able to figure out a suspect's car. In the affidavit, they were they refer to this car as Suspect Vehicle 1. This car was eventually pinned down to be a white 2015 Hyundai Elantra. Initially, police did not know what they were looking for or who, you know, because everyone and their mother drives Hyundai Elantras, especially right. white ones. Right. Girl. <laughs> um, the car did not have a front license plate, which is unusual for the area because both Idaho and Washington State both require front plates. Now, I say Washington because this town, Moscow, Idaho, is incredibly close to the Washington border. A review of footage of the King Road neighborhood shows multiple sightings of the Elantra starting at 3.29 a.m. and ending at 4.20 a.m. So this, this kind of stood out to me in the sense that it says ending at 4.20 a.m. Because before, in the affidavit, it said that the window was probably between 4 and 4.25 a.m. that the murders happened. But now we're finding out that the car drove away at 4.20 a.m. So it makes the window that much smaller. And I know that doesn't sound super important. Oh, it was like just five minutes. But five minutes, you guys, is a gigantic amount of time to commit a murder, to run away. Not only a murder, four. That well, but, okay, so, but on that note, five minutes is not a lot of time to commit four murders. But, you know, it's a lot of time to lose when you are in the in midst of committing four murders. Yeah. You know. So, these sightings show suspect vehicle one making an initial three passes by the 1122 King Road residence and then just leave. It is noted also that not a lot of cars drive through this area around a time like this. I mean, it's the literal middle of the night. Right. And as um, and it's residential. Yeah, exactly. Like this is very much like a college location. So like you can mm-hmm. see a lot of foot traffic. Right. Like, you're not yeah, really to seeing. Your point, like, yeah, in college, you drive kind of as little as possible, especially when you're on a campus. Like you're kind of just walking. You're maybe carpooling with people. There's not a ton of car traffic as we would see in other neighborhoods and or I feel in like downtown. If Right, and I feel like if there is, you would know. You'd be like, oh, that's Stephanie's car. Like, she gives me rides all the time to class. So, I mean, to that note, like, you know, if there's a foreign car in the area, it's going to cause some... It's going to stand out. People are going to notice it. Right. The car entered the area for the fourth time at approximately 4.04 a.m., which, again, makes the window smaller. So... Now the window we're finding is between 4.04 a.m. and 4.20 a.m. It can be seen driving eastbound on King Road after it leaves, stopping and turning around in front of 500 Queen Road, number 52, and then driving back onto King Road. When the car gets to be in front of the house in question, it appears to unsuccessfully attempt to park or turn around in the road. 
The vehicle then continued to the intersection of Queen Road and King Road, where it does a three-point turn and then drives again down Queen Road. The car is next seen departing the area of King Road at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. Now, this part, I think, is important to note because Queen Road actually wraps around and is, like, sort of behind the house, the King Road house. So, if you look at pictures of the house, you can see that where it sits on King Road, the kitchen sliding glass door where he is supposedly to use as the entrance and exit point is in the back of the house possibly he's driving on queen road to see the back of the house and like get a better look or you know see where he can get in that's what all those like comings and goings yeah very freaky amount of him driving around the neighborhood anyway how did they catch this guy let's get into son of a bitch they basically tracked this fucking car all the way back to its destination. Like, I I have to really commend the police officers in this case because they really put in their time's worth. Through security footage and street cameras, they were able to piece together that the car headed towards Pullman, Washington after the murders. Pullman, Washington is the town that Washington State University is in. It is about nine minutes away from Moscow. On November 25th, 2022, Moscow Police Department asked area law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for white Hyundai Elantras in the area. On November 29th, 2022, a result of asking every white Elantra yielded a a promising result. They located a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate. The vehicle was registered to Brian Koberger. And I just want to note, in Pennsylvania, you don't need to have a front license plate. Brian's license indicates that he is a white male with the height of 6 feet and weighs 185 pounds. Additionally, the photograph shows that he is a bushy-ass bitch with his eyebrows. <laughs> bushy-ass bitch. <laughs> he is. B-A-B. He's a bushy-ass bitch. Uh, all of this, like, matches DM's description of the intruder. So police are like, okay, we've got something to work with here. Car description seems like a good place to follow, you right. know? So, eventually, Brian Koberger, who is 28 years old, was arrested in late December at his parents' home in Pennsylvania, about 3,000 miles away from the crime scene. He was extradited to Idaho to face a criminal trial, and if he is convicted, Brian Koberger could receive the death penalty or life in prison. Now, let's discuss the death penalty here. Okay, yeah. Because I didn't even know that. Let's talk about what it means to be extradited to face those kind of charges. Because to me, it's like, well, you know, I, I guess not to me, because I'm about to tell you why it's not to me. But anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, to, you know, somebody who didn't go to school for this stuff or doesn't really, like, live and breathe this stuff like we do. Yeah. Um, the death penalty is the death penalty now. Well, state by state, and, you know, not every state even has the death penalty, But state by state, being on the death penalty can vary a lot. And I remember I took a class on capital punishment in college. If anyone is considering taking a class on capital punishment, I, like, could not recommend it more. It's, like, my favorite class I ever took because I learned so much from it. And I... I always was that person who was like, I guess I don't have a stance on the death penalty. And now I definitely do. And I just... I'm grateful I took that class. Anyway... 
sitting on the death row on death row in Pennsylvania, you're more likely to die of like old age yeah. or like you know getting a flu that kills you or something. <laughs> you know because they don't really kill people on death row in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know exactly how the death penalty works in Idaho, but I'm interested to see on, like, if he receives the death penalty in Idaho, is he more likely to die on death on death row in Idaho than he would die on death row in Pennsylvania? I don't know. So let's talk more about Brian and his dumb ass. Here he, for it. <laughs> he had actually completed his first semester of his doctoral studies in criminal justice and criminology at Washington State University at the time of his arrest. The, like I said, the Pullman-Washington campus is about, like, seven miles from the University of Idaho. Now, he also has undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics. According to the affidavit, last fall, he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department. In his essay, he said he was interested in, quote, assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. Now, he also posted a Reddit survey which asked for participants to provide information to, quote, understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. All this is to say, he still did it wrong. He is still a dumb fucking idiot. And get all the degrees you want, Brian, but you're still the dumbest fucking person I've ever heard of. Right. You're not getting away with murder. Like, like I'm sorry. And isn't that just great? Because it's always the, like, narcissists that get way ahead of themselves and think that they're as smart as it gets. And they think that, like, hundreds of people on law enforcement can't take them down in two seconds. Like, Brian, we caught you in less than two months. Please get off your high fucking horse. Like, I don't understand the cockiness that comes with that. It's like, you, you think you're above it. Yeah, almost. I mean, it's like a level of narcissism we'll never be able to understand. Right. Because as we are perfect, we're not narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> but truly, I... Yeah. I could go on all day about how, like, academics don't make people smart, and I think he's the poster child for it. Like, just because you get good grades or you have a lot of degrees does not necessarily mean that you're an intellectual. At all. Officials in Pennsylvania actually said that Brian had driven across the country with his father in mid-December from the Pullman campus. Now, I don't (gasps) want this... Oh, my God, this. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm about to talk about his... Yeah. Okay, but I don't want that to, like, look like, oh, he was fleeing because the murders happened November 13th and he didn't leave Pullman until mid-December, which, when he did, was not weird because everybody was leaving Pullman at mid-December to go home to their families for Christmas vacation. And, as I said, he was getting his Ph.D. in criminology and he actually, like, student taught. So, like, he was, like, a teacher's assistant, you know? I just don't want that to, to be a red herring here because it's not like, oh, good, he was fleeing the scene and we caught him. That's not really the case. It just so happened to... However, okay. he did get pulled over on his way back from Pullman to Pennsylvania by a local officer and then by a state trooper within nine minutes of each other. Uh, both, I think, because he was following too close. Uh, 
Sherry, this bitch <laughs> is such a bad driver. First of all, the affidavit is like, he did a three-point, well, he attempted to do a three-point turn. Then he did a three-point turn. Then he just lingered there. Then it, And I'm like, oh, my God. And then, like, the stereotypes against women driving. And here is Brian Koberger, not knowing how to use a damn vehicle, but thinking he's earning a PhD. Please. Listen. So that, he's a bad driver. He gets pulled over like nobody's business. Like, he's always getting pulled over. I felt like during my research, it was like, oh, and then he got pulled over in 2013, and then he got pulled over and da-da-da. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Get a grip. Somebody take this man's license. He's a danger to the public. He was pulled over by a local officer and then a state trooper within nine minutes of each other. And actually, when I first th- thought this, I was like, oh, my God, does the FBI have a bone to pick with them for pulling him over? But actually, they asked them to. Yeah. So the FBI was tailing when uh, he was being pulled over by these this local officer and the state trooper. And they actually had asked for footage of his face and hands. So you can look online. Uh, there is the body camera pictures or video of him being pulled over. He looks like a damn fucking freak. I listen. I I'm not one to be like looks are he has a look on his face that no human should ever have on their face. Like he looks like he's been caught red-handed with murder. It's an oh shit. I there's guilt, there's I know I did it's something. It's such a telling like eerie look knowing what he did and knowing that he felt like he escaped the law because he just oh I'm sure a month went by and he he literally was like oh good they just pulled me over it's like little do you know bitch we now know what your hands look like you stupid fucking idiot right so anyway this is before his actual arrest when this happens which makes me think if they were looking for what his face and his hands looked like one of the victims, at the very least one of the victims, must have put up a fight. He was charged in Idaho with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary for allegedly entering a residence with intent to commit murder. He is being held without bail at a county jail. He has not, as of this episode, entered a plea. So now at this point, you're probably wondering, like, what is the evidence outside of the fact that we have the, like, Elantra and Brian. And his description, basically. Right. Yes, we do have an eyewitness. At the scene, investigators found a tan leather knife sheath with U.S. Marine Corps insignia on the bed next to one of the victims. Now, it's actually on, it was found on the bed next to Maddie and Kaylee. They located a single source of male DNA on the button snap of the sheath. In December, investigators took trash from Brian Koberger's family home in Pennsylvania and sent it to a crime lab in Idaho, which identified a link based on family DNA. Cell phone data and security camera footage from the neighborhood also allegedly showed a car registered to Brian Koberger surveilling the house before the murders, as we know, but they also traced his phone through AT&T cell records and found that it was not active specifically on King Road between the window of 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. And this is, like, kind of interesting. The affidavit states, quote, Based on my training, experience, and conversations with law enforcement officers that specialize in the utilization of cellular telephone records as part of investigations, individuals can either leave their phone, te- their cellular telephone at a different location before committing a crime or turn their cellular telephone off prior to going to the location to commit a crime. 
This is done by suspects in an effort in an effort to avoid alerting law enforcement that a cellular device associated with them was in the particular area where the crime was committed. I also know that on numerous occasions, subjects will surveil an area where they intend to commit a crime prior to the date of actually committing the crime. Depending on the circumstances, this could be done a few days before or for several months prior to the commission of a crime. During these types of surveillance, it is possible that an individual would not leave their cellular telephone at a separate location or turn it off since they do not plan to commit the offense on that particular day. Brian Koberger is that individual. (laughs) So what does the corporal do? He applies for back records. Basically, he applied for and is granted a search warrant that will give him records of the phone's use between November 12th and November, November 14th, 2022, which is the day before the murders. Um, and then the day after the murders. Right. So on November 13th, 2022, at 2.42 a.m., the phone was seen at Brian Koberger's residence in Washington. This is consistent with the traveling of the car. The car was in Washington then, too, as far as we know. At 2.47 a.m., the phone stops reporting to the network. At 5.30 a.m., the phone turns back on or starts receiving service again, traveling back to Brian's residence. So... Everyone is able to fucking deduce that if the phone is on and leaving the incel's house and then gets turned off and then gets turned on right back on the way back to the fucking incel's house, it was in the car traveling the whole time and just turned off. He's an idiot. Word for word, that's what's in the affidavit. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine? They're like, this fucking incel, give me a warrant. (laughs) Video from security cameras and traffic cameras were able to track all of the car's whereabouts, including right in front of the house at the time of the murders, like we know. So what was the fucking point of turning off the cell phone? I don't know. Like, leave the goddamn phone at home. Let it ping all the towers near your house, you idiot. What is wrong with him? With all these degrees. I Uh, mean, uh, just... You can't teach stupid. (laughs) You can't. (laughs) If he was going to just drive his damn car around with the phone inside of it, like, what was the point of even turning it off? At that point, keep it on. Uh, honestly, just like, put on, call someone at that point. Like, have it actually, just stay on. send the police to the house that I'm about to commit four murders at, please. You That's just might you as well. well. Oh, my. He's so stupid. He got a PhD? That's what I wrote. The guy got a PhD? <laughs> I'm, like, so mad. So, okay. Um, <laughs> Sherry, I'm telling you my notes are so rogue. I go, so what was the fucking point of turning off your cell phone if you were just going to drive your damn car around with it inside under every goddamn camera under the sun? <laughs> You went hard. Yeah. Um, Okay, so here's another thing. The car was also spotted by the house at 9 a.m. on November 13th, which is the day of the murders. They happened in the middle of the night, so 9 a.m. is like the following morning. And I do want to say it's also before the police were called. So he came to check in if there was police presence probably, and there wasn't yet. Now, let's take a moment and talk about how truly dumb this bag of rocks is. Okay. Okay. Um, You can get all the schooling in the world, like I said, and you cannot just, like, fix this level of stupidity. Because here's the thing. He was said to have gone back to this area. Like, the affidavit states he went to this area, King Road area, 12 times before he committed the murders. Between June and November when he committed the murder. The corporal was able to, like get records back that far right. that and, and that he, he brought his there. phone every single time except for the one time he committed the murders but he was with his phone 
That is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. I mean, I, I think it's huge that well, he's been there 12 yes, times. 12 times. My thing here is, like, you went there 12 times. You then committed the murders. You got out seemingly unscathed, as far as we know. Or not unscathed, but close to it. And as far as he thought, there were no witnesses. Why in God's name are you going to drive your ass back to there at 9 a.m.? Because what if the police were there and they saw that sketchy-ass Hyundai Elantra? What, like, I don't, it's does he weird, want to be caught? It's like that weird thing, like, killers always feel the need to go back or, like, somehow insert themselves in cases. It's like, what the fuck is that? I don't right. get it. It's I don't understand it's it. It's really crazy. So... Police eventually actually found a car matching the description of the one that police were looking for and Brian Koberger's license and whatnot at his family home in Pennsylvania. Brian's next court appearance is a status conference that is set for January 12th, which is actually hopefully the day that this episode is released. But it might be a little late because we got all this information. We had to cram it in and just, you know, be grateful that we put it out at all. huh? <laughs> Honestly, they don't you... like it when I talk to them like that. They. <laughs> And the they that don't well, like it is definitely not going to like this. <laughs> way I'm talking now. Anyway, so a status conference is set for January 12th. This is where the attorneys will like likely discuss just kind of like logistic matters, like the scheduling of it all, and then we'll have more of an idea. I do want to note there's also a gag order on the case, which basically states that investigators are not able to like release details to the public except through court hearings or publicly filed documents. So like the affidavit is allowed to happen because it's a publicly filed document. Um, but you won't see any officers like giving comments about their opinions. I mean, they shouldn't in the first place ever. But Right. I'm like, why isn't that just more of like a standard yeah, thing? Yeah, it's just like let them do their job. And I mean, even from the we'll affidavit. find out after the court yeah. case. Like, that's the way it should go. But anyway, so that is the case here. I am wondering that maybe there will be a change of venue because it's possible that the defense will choose that route just because uh, Leyta County is a small community, and it might just be difficult to find a panel of 12 unbiased jurors. Oh, right. All right. So at this point, I don't have any further, like, solid facts from police. Um, but we are going to keep talking just about, like, what we're kind of feeling about it, um, any speculations that we've seen and agree with, theories that we've seen you know, theories we don't agree with. We're just going to kind of get all into it now. So if you were only really looking for the facts and you don't want anything more, that's fine. Now is the time for you to stop listening. We'll see you next week. Um, <laughs> but if you want to stick around, good. It's going to be a lot of interesting points. I mean, points just interesting points and just, like, connections that we may have not noticed and also some ridiculous shit people have been saying right um and it's just a nice debrief to just sort of like talk so if you guys want to stick around please do i mean i love this part of the episodes you know as if we've ever done it once well just like when <laughs> in between parts uh, you know like we have a routine but like i feel like we do have like mini debriefs in between episodes obviously this one we have a lot more to talk mm -hmm. about so it's sort of like oh my God, separated it's gonna be three hours long no stop <laughs> oh my god i'm editing this one don't say that <laughs> but I love this, so please stick around. Right. Okay. So people also thought that Brian Koberger may have actually been operating in a Facebook group about the case under the name of Papa Roger. Now, he did spell Papa wrong. I do want to point that out. <laughs> um, 
get yourself a PhD and you still don't know how to spell Papa? I don't know. Um, Jennifer Coffendaffer, a former FBI agent, said that one of the comments made by that account seemed to hint that Koberger was behind the account. The Post read, quote, Of the evidence released, the murder weapon has been consistent as a large fixed blade knife. This leads me to believe they found the sheath. This evidence was released prior to autopsies. Now, this post is from November 30th, which is before we knew anything about a sheath. We didn't learn anything about the sheath until the probable cause affidavit was released after his arrest. Now, for me, I'm not sure that this necessarily proves it was him writing this. Do I believe it could be? Absolutely. This guy was dumb enough to bring his cell phone, drive his own car, be at the scene several times and get caught on surveillance, and then revisit the scene in the morning, all while leaving the knife sheath behind. But knowing that the knife sheath was left behind, I mean, it's a big deal, I think. But it also could be a guess based on the fact that the police were looking for a knife. You know, either way, it's definitely a point of conversation. No, it is, because it's such a specific um, fact to know. I mean, like, who did they say it was like? Because I don't think they released that it was a specific type of knife that would require a sheath. Maybe, you know, like, yeah, well, that well, is for pretty all specific. We know, like, maybe there was a kitchen knife missing, and that's why they were looking for a knife. We really don't know much. So that is a very eerie comment that maybe could have been him. I don't want to hang my hat on it, but I just think it's an interesting point. It could definitely be him. Jennifer noted that he was removed the night before Koberger's arrest, um, and came, he actually created another Facebook group, And no, but nobody has heard from him since the arrest. And by him, Facebook you just group. mean this account Papa name. Roger. Okay. Yes. But she also posted something incredibly interesting. Ooh. So in 2014, Isla Vista had these killings. It was a series of misogynistic terror attacks, they call it, in Isla Vista, California. Now, it was basically on the evening of May 23rd, 22-year-old Elliot Roger killed six people and injured 14 others by gunshot, stabbing, and vehicle ramming near the campus of the University of of California, Santa Barbara. And then he committed suicide. Before driving to the sorority house, Roger uploaded a video to YouTube titled Elliot Rogers Retribution, in which he kind of like outlined his planned attack and his motives. And basically at its core, he is just some loser in cell who had maybe a bad childhood, family conflicts, just like frustration over his inability to get a girlfriend. And so this was like his, what he felt should be his retribution. Um, now, a lot of people are saying, is this the in- inspiration behind the account Papa Roger? Mm. Because, you know, the same name and the same kind of thing. Like, it was a sorority house, you know, what have you. So, one thing I will never get is, like, how these fucking incels live in such shame their entire life for being an incel. And, like, they're angry and they're rejected, so they stay quiet and they're always, like, the ones, like, kind of in the background or whatever. But then they go and they do the most, the ultimate humiliating thing by advertising that they are feeble bitches who can't handle life and that maybe they're the fucking problem. They can't handle just fucking self-evaluation. And, like, maybe women just don't want to be around you because of you. I think it's interesting how all that 
like hatred towards society can fester, but nothing can be pointed inward. There is no self-reflection. I can never begin to understand the topic of incels actually fucking perplexes me. It's like these fucking group of like men who feel like they've been wronged and then feel the need to have all this anger towards these forces that really aren't like doing anything directly towards them, but it just festers, you know? Right. So I just think it's gross and disgusting and pathetic. Yeah, girl. I Um, agree. I can't think of another word right now, so I'll leave it at that. Yep. Moving on from that theory, um, another theory is that possibly the only floor that was really supposed to be hit was the third floor. Now, the third floor is the floor that Maddie and Kaylee were on. Right. And... Like I said, it's Kaylee did not live there full time. So a lot of people are thinking, what does this mean that Maddie was the target? Because all of those 12 times that he was canvassing, maybe Kaylee wasn't there and he didn't know that Kaylee lived there. Um, th- so he's like a weird vegan. And I'm not judging vegans. I'm judging <laughs> this type of vegan that he is because he was like cuckoo bananas. And you it. all know what type we're fucking talking about. Yeah, like, so don't be coy. Don't make, be coy. When you make vegan your personality. Right. But he like makes it like his personality and he makes it like whatever. So he, I guess, like wouldn't eat any anything that was made in the same place that meat products were made. So he would like only go to like vegan restaurants. He wouldn't go to like a restaurant that has vegan options. Like he was very, very, very selective. Well, rumor mill says that Maddie actually worked at a vegan restaurant and that there are not tons in that area. So a lot of people are saying it's likely that, you know, he noticed her. She didn't really notice him. And, you know, he got mad or whatever and so he actually only planned on killing maddie right and i mean idaho and washington and this location specifically moscow idaho is so close to washington that that is a total possibility right now another thing that i think is kind of important to know is that we don't really have our bearings on this timeline like you know, the affidavit says the window's 4 to 425, then it says it's 404 to 420. We don't know. And they never specifically say, okay, Maddie was killed first, then Kaylee, then... Right, there is we no... We don't know. There's not, there's not an exact sequence of events, and right. like you said in the beginning of the episode, that is obviously intentional. Right, like, they probably do know the sequence of events, and we don't. On that note, I saw a theory that he actually killed the top floor girls, Maddie and Kaylee, earlier in the night. And then he realized that he left his sheath behind and went back for it. And it just so happened to be the time that Xana was getting her delivery. So she was a potential witness and he decided to take her out then. But he hadn't intended on taking her life when he went into the house. Right. Um, He also probably didn't expect Ethan to be in the house. He's a male, and I'm sure when he's canvassed the house in the past, it was only the girls that lived there because he'd go in the middle of the night and stuff like that. Um, But so we don't really know what he expected. I mean, with all of these, I mean, it's... A lot of moving Also was said to be a, a party house. Like, there was a lot of coming and going. So I don't know what he knew about who would be home or whatever, but, you know, it, it, all of this is a possibility. Another thing that I want to touch on before we finish the episode is the the sighting 
between him and DM, the roommate that is at the bottom of the stairs. So first and foremost, people have been saying like, well, she probably didn't see him or if he's if if she saw him, then he saw her. And I literally saw someone be like, I think she's involved with him. Okay. And let's put that to bed. She was best friends with her housemates. And to my knowledge, she's a good person. But here's the thing. Her room was probably dark. It was 4 a.m., mind you. It's dark outside. It's dark in her room. And she cracks the door open, and it's probably light in the hallway or in the kitchen or the living room. Maybe it's not even. But if she was in the dark in her room and he is walking by her room in the light, it's very possible that she could see him, but he couldn't see her. It's also possible that maybe he was in a trance. It's also possible that he blacked out a little bit. It's possible that maybe she only cracked her door open so small that he couldn't even see it was really open. It's also possible that maybe he didn't even intend on killing Ethan Ethan and Xana, and he was, like, in a frenzy and just, like, rushing out of the house. So he didn't even take the time to look around and see if there was anybody else. I don't think that her sighting of him is sketchy at all. I mean, even I, like, the first thing that came to mind was, like, if it, if it was some sort of, like, secret whatever involvement, why the fuck would she say that? She had no reason to say, yes, I saw him, in fact, in the window. She could have been like, I was asleep the whole time. Easily lied. Right. Easily not because, mentioned and that. And this is another thing that we know. So, DM is the one that spotted him. BF was also home, but she was downstairs, to, to our knowledge, sleeping. And... So people were like, oh, okay, so your roommates just get murdered and you can't hear it happening? Well, here's what I have to say to that. So I was reading an article where a past tenant, not the girls who live there now, but a tenant who lived there before, who lived in the same room as BF in the basement, he said, like, there's no way you could hear anything from the upstairs floors. So, I mean, I don't think it's weird at all. She was passed out. And here's another thing we really need to touch on. And I wanted to save it till the end because I don't have tons of facts on the 911 call. But the 911 call didn't come in until 11.58 the next morning. Now, yes, at face value, that seems weird. But this was a college town. It was a college night. I would be stupid to think that everybody involved was not hammered. And maybe on other things, we don't know. Um, but I'm just saying, I don't think it's crazy that some of these people didn't do what a sober, conscious person who is expecting something to happen to them does. I don't think that they expected the DM, if she did see someone, was probably not thinking, "Uh uh-oh, it's a killer. And that is not her fault because she didn't go into the night knowing her friends were going to be murdered. So she drank as much as she wanted to, and she went home, and she thought she would just go to sleep and have her night. You know what I mean? As much as people want to make these snap judgments, it's like you're not expecting these people who went to sleep probably drunk and, you know, whatever else in their system, to be up at 6 a.m. the next morning like, hmm, what do you want for breakfast? Eggs? Like, that's not the fucking case here. we're at, like, 4.20 when this is going down in the morning after having a whole night of drinking. Like, honestly, maybe she was like, I must be making this up. Like, who knows what she thought 
was going on or what was going on in her head. I mean, she is incredibly traumatized now, and I just don't think it's worth, like, throwing more things in her face. Because at the end of the day, also, like, she lost a lot of people here. So, sorry, my I'm not even letting you speak because I'm like, I gotta say it. No, it's okay, it's okay. okay. Pop off, pop off. But, so, the thing that makes me, you know, think a lot that she did not know the danger of the situation is the next morning she supposedly called a friend or friends I'm not sure it's very vague to come to the house before she called 911 and then once they were at the house is when the 911 call gets made now the 911 call says someone is passed out it doesn't say my roommates are dead it doesn't say anything like that as far as we know To me, that says she didn't realize the danger of the situation when it was happening. And, you know, a person that goes to bed at 4 a.m. after a night of drinking, well, maybe she woke up at 1130 in the morning. Maybe she woke up very close to noon and and she called right as soon as she woke up. Maybe she was in a state of shock so much so that eventually she fell asleep and she had no idea what happened to her until she regained cognizance. Right, like, I mean, we could go back and forth on, like, the mind of a drunk person, but, I mean, you just truly don't know what someone is like in that state. And one thing's for fact, they're not sober. So they're not operating like a sober person. And even sober people under this amount of stress or fear, you know, maybe don't make the exact right move, but it doesn't mean that they have a motive here. It doesn't mean that they... Um, deserve punishment or cruelty, it means... Or your judgment. It means everybody deals with everything differently, especially traumatic moments like this. So, I don't know. We could go all day. Um, We will be doing updates on this case as they come, um, whether it's just on our Instagram feed, whether it's a whole other episode. So keep an eye on that stuff. Um, Make sure that when you're speculating, you're also keeping in mind that there are families involved with this and, you know, there's still an ongoing investigation so just you know don't be that asshole on reddit that is blaming everybody under the sun and just you know be on the lookout for sketchy behavior because i'll tell you what it's everywhere and it's especially in normal situations like this thanks for listening you can catch us on instagram at the chalkline pod twitter at the chalkline pod and follow along with our youtube channel the link is in our instagram bio tune in next thursday for another story